Um, all right, in this text, Luke 17, in the community groups this week and on the podcast, you, you heard up to 19, but we're just not going to go that far, uh, honestly, just for the sake of time, so that we can get deeply into a couple of things rather than the four stories. When Luke wrote this, we don't know if the stories followed each other. There's kind of, this, kind of, this part of Luke is quite compact, and we don't know if the stories are uh, right chronologically um, or if Luke is just packing all of, all of what he's gathered, all the information that he's gathered, and he's putting it in, he's like, you need to know all this stuff. But what we do know is somehow God has sovereignly put these together in his word, and so we're just going to take them as they are and read them together in that way. And we've got two stories. One is about um, forgiveness and sin, and uh, it's pretty brutal. Jesus is saying, don't cause people to sin. Um, if you do, it would be better for you to be drowned in the ocean. Uh, than to have to face God for causing people to sin. That's quite scary, right? I, I mean, I, I hope we, we get that sense. A millstone was a grinding stone. Think of an olive press. And the millstone would, would, would be this ginormous stone which no uh, individual could pick up and um, tie it around your neck. Would simply, the picture Jesus is simply stating is basically, um, it's, it's kind of a mob picture, uh, chuck that person in some concrete and chuck that in the ocean. Um, it would be, that would be better than causing uh, young Christians or, or, or uh, disciples to, be, um, to sin. And, um, and then he goes on to say, but if you do sin, and he's very realistic, how wonderful it is, how, how realistic Jesus is. If you, if, you, if you find someone who is sinning, go in and um, rebuke them, uh, warn them, that's what the word means there, warn them, let them know it's dangerous what, what they're in. And if they ask for forgiveness, um, forgive them. And, and then Jesus uses a number, not to say that, you know, after this number you should stop forgiving people, but to say that forgiveness should, should be without end. You should, just, you should always be ready to forgive someone who's repenting. Um, the disciples hear this, uh, and, and then they go, oh, Jesus, increase our faith. In other words, they're realistic about it as well. You know, I, uh, when we hear good teaching, when I hear good teaching, I kind of feel quite pumped. Uh, Ranjit pre- preached a couple weeks ago, and I, I was quite pumped, like marks of a disciple. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to go nail those this week. And then you go find out that it's not really possible by yourself. Um, and, and the disciples are realistic, and they're honest. Man, we can't do this by ourselves. Jesus, increase our faith. And that's what we're going to look at. But the point I want to make this morning is that every follower of Jesus has been equipped to provide ongoing forgiveness to needy sinners. Every follower of Jesus has been equipped to provide uh, ongoing forgiveness for needy sinners. There's these two characteristics of a follower of Jesus in these stories. The one is a life of forgiveness, and that deals with our relationship with one another, a life of forgiveness. You'll notice in, in scriptures, uh, quite often, whenever there's talk about our relationship with God, there's almost immediately talk about our relationship with one another. And the idea there is that the, the way that we practice often our relationship with God is our relationship with one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. That's easy to do, right? Okay, then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's just not that easy to do, people. Well, that's, you know, that's how we love. Paul took, the, took um, the, the, the law, which was, depending on which tradition you were, maybe 2,000 laws, 600 laws, definitely the Ten Commandments. And Paul put it down to one, loving others in Galatians. Because our relationship with God is practiced in relationship with other people. And so we have forgiveness, 
is a, a, a human relation. That's a lot harder than saying, I love God, right? Or the bumper sticker, I love God, but not the church. It's easy to love a perfect God, but His perfect love flowing through our lives uh, helps us to love imperfect people. And that's how we practice it. So the church shouldn't be kind of this perfect group of perfect people doing perfect things. The church should be a group of imperfect people figuring out how to get the wonderful love of God flowing through their lives to imperfect other people. Um, so you see a life of forgiveness is this one characteristic. And then the other characteristic that goes with it, hand in hand, two sides of the same coin, or, or needed, they need, this needs it, is a life of faith. A life of forgiveness comes from a life of faith. And that talks about our relationship with God. I can't have a life of forgiveness between my wife and I if I don't have a, a life of faith in God. Because uh, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is unsafe. Forgiveness is dangerous. Forgiveness is uh, not enjoyable. For, I mean, I, some of you are looking at me like you've, you've, um, you're just the best forgivers. And maybe you are. Uh, my confession is I'm not. I don't like forgiving. Uh, I, would rather that, I, I would rather put guilt and shame on someone than give them forgiveness. Why? Because when you bring someone forgiveness, they no, you no longer have any rights over them. You no longer have any control over the situation. You can no longer keep bringing it up. You free them. You liberate them. You release them with love. Oh, dang it. I do like getting forgiveness, just to make that clear. So, number one, a life of forgiveness our relationship with others. Uh, Gene Veith writes about three ways that people try to come to God. Think, think about our culture and think about yourself and think about people you know at your school or at your workplace and think if this is true of your experience. He says there's three ways people try to come to God. Number one is moralism. People try to be good enough. Number two is speculation. People try to know enough. Number three is mysticism. People try to become one with God. Do you know any of those? I think moralism, I think, is a very Australian way to try to come to God. Not that people directly, uh, not that Australians directly try to get to God through moralism, but we have this kind of philosophy in our country of, um, if I'm not a Christian, I'll leave it to God. I don't know about God, but all I can do is I can be a good person, and then, you know, if He's just and loving, that will be enough. That's kind of a moralistic approach. I, I want to be a good person, a good bloke, do the right thing funny, we're in a country that's relativistic, there's no truth, your truth is your truth, and yet we can say to each other, do the right thing. And so moralism rules uh, our society, right? Not religion, but moralism. Do the right thing. Be a good person. Um, speculation, that's about knowledge. If I have enough knowledge, I can, get to, I can get to God, I can figure it out. Or mysticism. This is about like ecstatic experience. Um, my one daughter's getting baptized today. Uh, she's 13. When I asked her why, as we kind of processed through if she should get baptized or not, um, she said, I've been waiting for something to happen for years. I've been waiting for an experience. And then I realized, this is a 13-year-old speaking, then I realized that's not what faith is. And well, what do you mean by that, Ella? I realized that faith is not waiting for an experience. Faith is accepting what Jesus has done for me. And I do believe what Jesus has done for me, and I do want to give my heart to Him, and I do want to live for Him, and so I want to get baptized. Um, mysticism says, I can find God in the experiences, in, 
uh, you know, uh, what it, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more. We're not going to move on uh, from these totally. But the Bible teaches us that, Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks God. So, number one, Jesus teaches that if you, uh, Jesus does, never teaches that if you're moral enough, you'll get to God, uh, rather teaches no one is righteous. It's the very opposite of that. The, the world outside of the church thinks that the church is teaching moralism, thinks that the church is saying you need to be a good person, you need to be good enough to God, for God. The actual fact of our gospel is that none of us are good enough. None of us will ever be good enough. That the righteousness of Jesus is all we need. Someone else's good enough has to be enough for us. So Jesus never teaches that uh, if you're moral enough, you'll get to God. Number two, Jesus never teaches that if you're smart enough, you'll get to God. He says no one understands. Even Stephen Hawkins didn't understand. The smartest mind can't understand. And it's very simple. How can an infinite God be understood within the space of my ears? And if He could be understood, then surely I've made Him up. When I struggled with my own faith, I asked a very good theologian about it, and he gave a very simple answer. Actually, I don't even know if he was talking to me or if I was just listening to a talk, but it felt so personal, I, I, it feels like he was speaking to me. But I'm confused now. But he said this. I'm not confused about what he said. He said, if the doctrine of God, if the understanding of God, if the teaching of God doesn't end in mystery, then a man has made it up. And I suddenly realized every part of God I didn't like was the parts that didn't make sense between my ears. I just didn't like that I couldn't have ultimate control on who God is, who He was, what He does. I had too many why questions, what questions, how questions, that God just doesn't answer because my brain is just too small. I can't big brain it. <laughs> Jesus never teaches that if you're smart enough, you'll get to God. And Jesus never teaches that if you um, have hard-to-explain experiences, you'll get to God. Jesus never teaches that if you take your shoes and just ground yourself in the earth, you'll get to God. That if you take the right drugs, listening to the right music, that you'll have the right vision and find God. Jesus never turns us inward through Eastern meditation or rituals or mantras uh, that we can find the divine being in our own energy. He says, no one seeks God. God must come seek us. So religion is not the way. Knowledge is not the way. And voodoo magic meetings and prayer tunnels are not the way. So the good news, I think for average Australians, I think, who think that religion is dangerous or who binge watch Netflix and, and sports shows, um, or who aren't trying to connect themselves to the energy uh, in this world or within, the good news is, nor is Jesus. No one is righteous. You're not going to find your way to, by being good enough. No one understands. You're not going to find hidden knowledge. No one seeks God. You're not going to find a hidden experience. All of this is not to say that as you walk with God, He doesn't change your character or that the Holy Spirit doesn't bear fruit in our lives. It's not to say that as you read God's Word, 
He doesn't help your mind to understand things. It's not to say that through the Holy Spirit you don't experience God's presence. It's not to say any of that. It's just to say none of those, those things are the things that connect you to God. So we must give up these pathways. So Jesus is talking in this text about sin and he's warning, don't, don't cause others to sin. Um, and then he's, you know, if you find a brother in sin, uh, what is sin? It's like this three-letter word that's, that we don't always really understand. Well, I don't always understand. I would hate to be stopped on the street outside of Hungry Jack's down the road by just a regular Joe who's voting across the road. He goes, hey, I've got a question for you. Just quickly in one sentence, describe sin. Ugh. How would you do it? And I'm sure you'd have a good answer. But even though we'd have a good answer, my good answer would probably come from what I've been taught about sin as opposed to, I, I know how to help you understand it. Anyway, what is sin? Let's talk about it quickly. Sin, we're going to go through this stuff quickly. Sin is literally falling short of a goal, missing the mark. It was an archery term that the Bible uses uh, of how an archer misses the mark. It doesn't end up where it's aimed to, to be or where it's supposed to go. And it misses the mark. We can sin. How can we sin? We can sin by doing what we shouldn't do or by not doing what we should do. There's, there's sins of omission and sins of commission. A sin of commission is when you do something that God has said we should not do. And sins of omission is when we don't do the things that God has told us we should do. Right? So you could, you, most of us, if you're like me, um, we've, we, we find kind of our guilt in the sins of what we do. But we feel less guilty about the sins that we don't do. Right? So I did this thing, I lied, I shouldn't have lied. Oh no, I feel rubbish. Versus, you know, love your neighbor. Well, I actually hid from my neighbor. I just didn't feel like talking to them. Uh, and, and I ran inside quickly with my head down. But I feel great about it because now I can watch the Dockers play. Right? They both are equally, sins of commission, omission, both sins. Uh, we've all sinned, the Bible teaches. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you're not a Christian and you think Christians think that they're better, I just want to tell you, Christians do not think they're better than anyone. Christians think that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Secondly, um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't deny this. Uh, John says, if we, have, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. So don't, we're all, we're all sinners. We should not go on sinning. The writer of Hebrews says, if we deliberately go on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. This is very different to sinning and repenting. This is if we deliberately go on, this is how I'm choosing to live. Uh, there is no longer um, a sacrifice for our sins. And yet we will sin. Romans says, in, Paul, in Romans, Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. This is the great apostle, the most influent, influential Christian besides um, Jesus himself in the, script, in the New Testament, says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The evil I do uh, not want, I keep on doing. So Paul says, I find this thing in me. There's these two natures. There's what God is doing by the Spirit, and that's, uh, that's who I am in Christ. And yet I'm still within the flesh. I, there still is temptation, and I still find myself stumbling along the journey with Jesus. And so every Christian, including Paul, should be humble. 
Isn't it interesting as you follow Paul's chronology, he starts off, and, I, and we've said this quite a lot, but just for those who, who maybe knew, Paul, this great apostle, at the beginning when he gets saved, he says, uh, I'm the worst of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles, he says. That's like uh, right at the beginning of his ministry. I'm the least of the apostles. Well, Paul, I mean, you're the least of the, the, the apostles. Jesus is like super leaders. Well, that's, not, that's not a small thing. I, you know, that would be a fantastic thing. But at the end of his life, years or in the year that he died, he said, I am the worst of all sinners. Well, that's different. None of us think we're as good as the apostles, but all of us think we're better than the sinners. Paul doesn't think that as he journeys. As he journeys and sees the grace of God, sees uh, from what God has saved him, as he walks with Jesus and finds freedom and liberty and life, he realizes it's okay to see what, what he is. He goes, I'm just the worst of all sinners. He stops, he, he's got nothing to hide. So, and we see sin is very serious. Sin results in death. Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin is something we should remove from our lives. Paul writes, do not offer your parts of your body to sin, rather offer yourselves to God. The life of sin is the life that replaces, sorry, a life of faith is the life that replaces a life of sin. Paul writes, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So sin's quite serious. This is what sin is. We, we all do it, and yet as we walk with Jesus, uh, we should be liberated from it. So the Bible is very honest about sin, it's very serious about sin, but it's also very realistic about our journey uh, with sin and temptation. We all have to face up to it, but what a relief that Jesus is realistic in this text. You know, it, temptation is inevitable. Now, if he just said that, we might go, yeah, 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 Jesus is saying you can be tempted to sin, but, but he's not thinking that anyone would actually do it. I mean, surely the mark of a Christian is that you can stand up against temptation. And, and, in, and that's true. And yet, he goes on to say, if your brother sins. In other words, he's saying, you know that they may not, but if they do. Not they have to, but they might. It's this, if you've ever listened to one of Ant's uh, comedy shows, this sounds like one of his, um, he has this, one of these things, uh, and I forget what it is about, but it sounds like that. You may not, but you might. Jesus say, doesn't say that you have to, but he does say you could. This is this if, if it, hap if it happens, not when it happens, but if it happens. It's, it's, he's realistic. And what a relief that our, that our Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is realistic. If Ezekiel struggles, Mark, as you disciple your son, if he struggles, here's how to, here's how to help him. If. Not, not he will. Not he must. That would weaken our faith. Jesus has said, we're all just going to like, struggle with sin until we die. Oh, well, all right. I can do nothing about it. I feel temptation. Let me just enter it. If he said it never happens, then every time we sin, we would just cover ourselves in shame and guilt. We just hide because we, we're sure that we're not allowed to anymore. Jesus is realistic. Sin has been defeated. However, if, if you do, oh, 
how each of us have needed to run to Jesus' arms. Jesus, strong and kind. So the way we get out of sin is through repentance. If, if, we are, if we are moralists, we hide ourselves. We hide our, our sin. That's what Adam and Eve did. They clothed themselves with fig leaves. They first hid themselves from each other. They sinned, and Scripture says they became aware of their nakedness, and so they hid themselves from each other. And then God says, where are you? And they go and hide in the bushes. And they hide themselves from God. You, you see what's broken down? Both relationships, this way and that way. The relationship's gone. Why? Because they're hiding in their sin. They're moralists. They do gooders. Jesus, strong and kind, means I don't have to hide. I don't have to fig leaf it. I can run into His arms and say, Jesus, I've blown it. I don't want to. Like Paul, the great apostle, I find in my life that there's something that I don't want to be there, but it's there. Help me, God. We get out of sin through repentance. Um, repentance means that we understand that we face up to our sin, and it literally means to turn away from it, to turn away from it and to turn towards God is repentance. Now, here comes a tricky bit. Paul says, actually, Paul talks to the Corinthian, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, 21, you can go read it, and he says this word, he says, I'm terrified, I, I, I'm, I'm fearful, I'm very, very anxious that I might come to visit you and find that you are not repenting of your old sin. Paul, Paul finds this, you know, and I, I'm, I'm just thinking about that, I'm like, yes, because we often, you know, throw the Corinthians under the bus. Man, the Corinthians church, whoa, they were, they were bad. I mean, some guy was having an uh, inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law, like, whoa, man. And then Paul says something like this, and it just goes right over our heads, and then we stop and think about it. Hold on a second. All he's saying is this. Is repentance a normal part of your church community? Do you spend time easily sharing with one another, before God, what you're struggling with? Do you go to other people and say, hey man, this last week, I found that I was struggling with this. Please pray for me. And suddenly, oh, gee, uh, I don't know how keen I am for Paul to come and, and visit or for Paul to come to my house or to have a spiritual friendship with Paul. No, thank you. <laughs> Paul, I'll buy you coffee at Mary Street and um, then I'll introduce you to my friends and you can get to know them and chat and then I'm just going to stay busy on the side. Because one-to-one -one with Paul, Paul might say, Mark, I feel very anxious that you are not repenting of sins, and maybe you're hiding them. Well, Paul, I just want to remind you that you're the worst of all sinners. <laughs> <laughs> Repentance and forgiveness are relational. We never get out of sin alone. That's what hiding is. Hiding our sins is aloneness, it's isolation, it's I can get through this, I can do better next time, if I try harder. The reason we don't, and we have this great men's group that's busy reading a book together, and, and one of the guys said, I, found, I find that as I think of myself as a mature Christian, I forget his words, but paraphrase, as I think of myself as a mature Christian, I'm less likely to repent. Because I think people, I think people, expect more from me, and I don't want to let them down. You see, that, you see the hiding in that? I, I feel exactly the same thing. 
You see the hiding in that? You see the isolation in that? I'm such a good Christian, I need to keep up the pretense that I don't struggle. Because otherwise others will let... And suddenly a, a gap in our relationship forms. Rather than Paul, the very good Christian, the great apostle, the most influential Christian in history. I'm the worst of all sinners. And I bet you that the people that were around him got to hear exactly what he meant. They didn't just need the principle written down. Paul could have stopped and gone, you know why? Here's why. This is what I find. You know, I'm terribly upset about, and then he goes off explaining why he understands that there's sin reigning in his heart or his life. Jesus tells his disciples later on in Luke, and we'll look at this text as we, we, we're going to finish Luke in the, in the third term, we'll be done. Isn't it been amazing to go through Luke? It's taken us about two years, but we'll be done next term. And week after week after week, this idea of Jesus being strong and kind is, has blown me away. At times, I think I've only known that Jesus is strong, and then his kindness has blown me away. And other times, I, I think I've been comfortable with gentle Jesus, but then I find that He's not mild and He's terrifying. Jesus says, go, into, go and preach, declare, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness are relational. If you only have repentance and not forgiveness, it's crushing Think about this. Uh, I'm in a relationship with my wife. There are times, believe it or not, that I, it's hard for me to think of her not forgiving me. She's a great forgiver vessel. She lives to give forgiveness. Sometimes I think she wants me to, to need forgiveness so that she can just pour it out. I, on the other hand, am not. Think about this, though. Think about... Nas needs forgiveness for something. And she comes to me and says, Mark, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And I go, <laughs> yeah, whatever. And I know I can't say no, because I, I know Jesus too well for that. <laughs> and I know the Holy Spirit too well for that. And the Holy Spirit's very uncomfortable in arguments. I don't know how you find the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't always speak to me all the time, but He definitely speaks to me when I'm arguing with my wife. It's always uncomfortable. And the most annoying thing is that He pushes for reconciliation while I'm trying to fight to be right. It's never, I don't think it's ever like that. Sorry, it's not that intense, but it feels like that in my heart. And she asks, and I go, well, I don't know, yes, fine, whatever, just... Leave me alone. I want to think about it for three hours or days or months. Just be kind. What it does to her is it crushes her. It's, it's forgiveness is not, it's not bringing us together. Repentance without forgiveness is crushing. You're, you're, you're humbling yourself. You're opening yourself. You're exposing yourself. You're in need. You're saying, please, forgive me. I recognize this. I see this. I'm not hiding it. I'm bringing it out. I'm laying myself naked before you. Please, will you forgive me? <laughs> Crushing. Well, what do you think it would do over time? would probably do to a person is go, I, I just don't know if I can ask for forgiveness. I've been crushed so many times. Okay. 
And it would require quite a lot of faith to go back, right? And do it again and again. But repentance with, uh, but, sorry, forgiveness without repentance is empty. Imagine the same argument, but Nas doesn't think she needs forgiveness. And I just come over, and I, I have done this a few times. I just come over to, as a joke, um, and say, hey, Nas, I forgive you, love. I actually I quite, I, I quite enjoy doing that. <laughs> Why? Because I really, really, really need to grow in forgiving people quickly and easily. And the best times to practice is when they don't need it. Because I get to just play with it and have fun with it and see what it feels like and what it should sound like and how light it can be. So Nass is busy making a delicious meal and I come alongside her and I put my arms around her waist and I say, I forgive you, I love you so much. You're the apple of my eye. I just desire reconciliation and peace. I don't want to argue with you or fight, or if you ever want that to, to argue with me, I just want you to know that I don't want that. I just want us to serve the Lord and give an example of Jesus and His bride. I forgive you. She's <laughs> no, she normally knows it's a joke. So uh, anyway, my, my point is it's empty. Forgiveness without repentance is empty. There's nothing in there. I said, so what are you doing? What are you talking about? It's a waste. Imagine two people have argued and then one comes to the other and goes, I forgive you. That's only going to make things worse. You forgive me. <laughs> what? Can you imagine your children, after you've disciplined them for disobeying, come to you and go, Dad, I've prayed about it. I forgive you, man. little child (laughs) I know your brain is still developing You, you get how empty it is but forgiveness and repentance are relational and they go hand in hand they need one another repentance and forgiveness is divine it's God's love working through us it's God's righteousness cloaking us it's the garden of Think of the garden where they cover themselves in fig leaves and shame and God comes and gives them proper clothing as a, as a picture of what He's going to do in Jesus Christ, of the righteousness He's going to robe them in, of the dignity He's going to restore to us through Jesus. That's, that's what it's like. I'm so sorry. In my sorry, I feel naked and ashamed. I, I would like to ask you for your forgiveness. Oh, let me robe you in dignity. Let me robe you in the righteousness of Jesus. I understand that. Don't worry about it. We all mess up. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember how you are forgiven. Remember how He has robed you. Remember that He's enough. How often? Imagine this. You wake up grumpy and you give your housemate the cold shoulder. And then you catch yourself and you say, God, I'm sorry. I think I'm grumpy today. Um, please help me. And then as you drive off to work, someone cuts you off and you yell some things at them. And you hear words come out your mouth that you're sure you quit saying ages ago. <laughs> oh, no. God, I'm, I'm so sorry. That's not how I want to be. Please forgive me. And then you get to work and your boss comes to you and the work that the boss should have done on the weekend they didn't do because they were out sailing and so they put it on you and say, you need to get this done before the board meeting. And you feel bitter and angry and mad. God, 
I'm sorry, I've asked for opportunities to show my boss love and grace, to demonstrate your kindness. And here's one right now, and, I, and I'm reacting. And you're working with a colleague that you find attractive, and you, you, you find that you, lust is on your mind, and you, oh God, I don't want to, that's not what I want. Father, forgive me. And then you go home, and uh, back to your housemate, and you've got your two-minute noodles, and your friend runs, runs out the door to go hang out with all their friends, and you realize you have no friends, just your two-minute noodles. <laughs> and you feel alone and sorry for yourself, and you start sulking, and then you catch yourself, and you go, I'm sorry, God. I've turned inward and self-centered. Please forgive me. How many times before God goes, I don't believe you. I don't think you're genuine. I don't think you mean that. The scriptures say in infinity, but we don't feel that because we have our own low bar of how many times. Not God's low bar, our own low bar. Because if someone comes to me and says, Mark, will you forgive me? I think the first time, I, the, the other day I, miss, I forgot a meeting at my own house. <laughs> I wasn't even there and the people showed up. And uh, it was before community group. So after community group, I said to them, I'm so sorry. I, I just totally forgot about it. Um, it, it didn't take them a moment. They, they, it, before I could finish, I said, don't even worry about it. It was actually quite nice. We're glad we actually needed the rest. It was nice to just sit for an hour and not have anything to do. It was a relief. Please don't worry about it. And then I started feeling good about missing the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) But that was just pride and I dealt with that. But what if the next week I didn't show up again? And I'm so sorry, I forgot again. And then the next week I didn't show up again. I really, I mean truly, I really am sorry. Now look, I I can see your mind spinning and there's steam starting to come out of your ears and you're going like, yeah, but that person's not being faithful and they should be able to blah, 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 and they should remember and it's not why. And I see all of our arguments and I feel all of our arguments and I can argue with you against forgiving for so many reasons. But the simple principle is this. Again and again and again. And the grace of Jesus is this, that somehow as this amazing forgiving couple go, we get it, Mark. And here's the thing, Mark, this is the third time in in a row, and here's what we we think you might, you might start thinking, Mark, that we're less likely to forgive you because really you've done this three times now. We just want you to know we forgive you as much as the first week. It's no different. You know what we do in my heart? grace would begin to work upon my heart. There would begin to be a desire to honor them, a desire to show up, not a fear, oh shoot, if I don't show up, I'm going to be out of chances, right? Jesus doesn't lead us with fear, He leads us with grace. And naturally, as they pour the grace of God out upon me again and again, and they peel off my own guilt and my own shame, naturally, through the Holy Spirit, the grace of God works upon my heart to desire to honor them, to show up, 
to meet them as we've said, to be faithful, and the work of the Holy Spirit begins to shape Christ's likeness in me, and one day I can say, I've become faithful, not because I am, I've seen how I am, but because of grace in my life, the Holy Spirit has produced faithfulness. Honor, love, patience, kindness. How? Because of the grace of God working through the Holy Spirit in my life. Not fear, not threats, not you've done it again. In The Lincoln Lawyer, and I'm drawing it to a close, in a TV show, The Lincoln Lawyer, the husband uh, speaks of his murdered wife who was having an adulterous affair, and he's a suspect, and he says to the lawyer, I would never have done it. She was everything. I loved her. All I would have wanted to do is win her back, save our marriage, work at it. She was my life. My future was with her. My dreams were with her. Nothing had changed. I would have just wanted to be able to say to her, it's okay, I forgive you. Turns out, as the story goes, that his heart wasn't the same as his mouth. Forgiveness sounds good. Sounds good in a Netflix TV show. It sounds good in a church. Sounds good in a marriage. Sounds good at school. Sounds good in the workplace. Not always, but it often sounds good. But if we tear open our hearts, our hearts aren't as forgiving as our heads and our mouths can be. And so the disciples who may be more honest than us say, Jesus, increase our faith. You know, I hear this and maybe you hear this and you start, if you start debating, but what if, what, I mean, it's dangerous. What if this person is uh, harmful or causes damage? Or, and, and there are some fair questions to ask. There is wisdom that accompanies forgiveness. Or you could start feeling burdened and be like, I'm such a bad forgiver. I'm so bad. I remember this person said, oh my gosh, did they talk to Mark? Is, Mark, is that why Mark's bringing this? I mean, I, w- I wish they had just told me rather. I mean, I'm just, I, I've tried to expose to you how bad I am, at, but, but can you f- do you feel burdened? Do you feel useless? Do you feel like I'm not good at that? Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so exposed by how unforgiving I am. And now my friend or my spouse or someone in this room is hearing it and they know that I'm like this. I'm the wrong side of the ledger. The disciples didn't feel shame or burden or guilt. The disciples didn't argue against it. But what about Jesus if it's Caesar and Caesar's busy killing all of us? What about Jesus, you know, like, okay, Jesus, we'll do it, but what are the times we don't have to do it? Simply, they were honest. Oh God, increase our faith. To do this, we're going to need you. Faith is simply this. It's the belief or trust or confidence in God. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus affirms people for their faith and rebukes them for their lack of faith. Tells them off. Says to his disciples, where is your faith? 
when they couldn't, when they got scared in the storm. Why are you not trusting God? I mean, we're on like a global mission to save people and you're scared of the wind and the seas. Where's your faith? Hebrews teaches, we cannot uh, have a right relationship with God without faith. Hebrews 11.6. So moralism won't get you to God. Knowledge won't get you to God. Ecstatic experiences won't get you to God. So how do we get to God? The answer is God will get us to God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace, by God's grace, you have been saved through faith in Jesus. God has done it all. While we were dead in our transgressions, in our sins, God has saved us through faith in Jesus. Jesus did it all for us. And so Jesus teaches here, He talks about a mulberry tree being thrown into an ocean, and it's, it's, it's such a strange picture. But Jesus is simply saying, it's not the amount of faith. It's not more or less. Increase our faith. If we had more faith, we could do this thing. Jesus is saying, no, you don't need more faith. If you had the tiniest amount of faith, he spoke about the smallest seed that they could understand. If you had the smallest seed, the smallest seed compared to a big established tree, those mulberry trees that they believed could stay rooted in the ground for 600 years. So he's using comparison. The smallest seed, this mustard seed, versus this established tree whose roots could remain grounded for 600 years. Faith can topple this thing over like this. All you need is faith. In another, in another story, faith can move a mountain. Jesus keeps comparing. He's trying to show us the potency of faith. You don't need increase. It's just the presence of faith. You just need to trust God. You just need to believe God. When he says to his disciples, when he rebukes them, he doesn't say, why do you have little faith? He doesn't say, why don't you have more faith? What does he say? Where? Where is it? If it was here in the boat, you'd be fine. Where did you put it? Did you, did you put your faith in your ability? Did you put your faith in fear? Did you put your faith in the storm? Where did you put it? Go get your faith and put it in God. Trust Him. Believe Him. But this isn't fair, God. Don't put your faith in fairness. Put your faith in God. But this is too hard, God. Don't put your faith in your ability. Put faith in God. But they don't deserve it. Don't put your faith in justice. Put your faith in God. Faith is trusting God, believing God, and having confidence. And it's okay, I heard, uh, it's okay to pray, I believe, help my unbelief. It's okay to pray that. I heard a story of a, of a guy who's, uh, um, I, just thought, I just want to say names, who was at the Easter service and became a Christian at that service. And I said to them, uh, why or how or, or how did that happen? Or, and they said this, well, I was curious about Jesus and I was on this journey and I was trying to find, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't get there. And so I just prayed, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. He said, on Easter, as I was in the meeting, God just opened up my heart to him. And suddenly, 
I had what I lacked, and I believed. God brings us to Himself. It's not mystic experience, it's not knowledge, it's not good enoughness. I believe, help my unbelief. It's just the presence of faith. Faith isn't for those who are trying to be good enough. It's for those who can admit they're not good enough. Faith isn't for those who want all their questions answered. It's for those who know that they don't have all the answers. Faith isn't for those who want experiences. It's for those whose trust in Jesus' experience on the cross is enough for them. Let me just read this to you and I'll, I'll draw to a close and hand over to Josh. While you are hiding yourself from God, you will not be able to allow others to expose their need for forgiveness. You will cover them in guilt and shame, indifference and separation. Jesus calls us to cover one another in the grace and mercy of God's forgiveness and to robe one another in His glorious righteousness. How can we do that? How can we do this? Because this is precisely what Jesus does for us over and over and over. Jesus never, ever asks us to do anything for anyone that he doesn't first do for us immeasurably so. And so I need to be able to forgive more easily. Why? Because I need to know that God forgives me easily. If I'm withholding forgiveness from others, it's because I'm still hiding myself from God. If I've been able to fully expose my heart and my life and go, God, I see it. I know you see it, but now I see it and I know that you are good and I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting that Jesus is enough. Forgive me. Then when someone comes and says, forgive me, it's a little bit easier to go, oh yeah, no, no worry. Okay. It's easier to put their, robe them in dignity when I know what has been done through, for me through Christ. Josh is going to take us to communion, so I'll let him uh, land us in that. But let me just state. And Jesus has paid for all of our sins. The sins you've committed, the sins you're going to commit. And that you never have to hide yourself with fig leaves or in bushes from brothers and sisters or from God. Jesus is completely realistic. He literally died so that we would never have to hide ourselves again. So that we could walk in His righteousness and His righteousness alone. Please get your head around that a little bit. In my sin, in the moment of my sin, He is leaning in, wanting, waiting to put upon His righteousness, sorry, to put His righteousness upon me. He is waiting, willing, seeing that Mark would go, oh no, God, I'm sorry. This is... I see the flesh. I see what's happening. Please forgive me. Whew. Remember, you are covered in my righteousness. I forgive you. 
And then we have the great privilege to do that for one another. Please don't lack the courage to rebuke one another. We are not moralists. We are not called to be moralists. We are not called to run around watching each other going, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Don't do that. You should have done that. Oh, you're not forgiving. You're not forgetting. You're not uh, repenting. We're supposed to be warning each other, hey, brother, sister, could you please consider? Could you pray about? What do you think? And they may go, I've thought about it. I see it. You're right. Please forgive me. Absolutely. Hey, when you said that, it really hurt. I forgive you. My wife, who I told you, is a vessel of forgiveness like no other, except maybe Jesus. Just joking. He's way better than her. Someone did something against her which was offensive and wrong. And she found the courage to go and confront them, as the Bible says we should. And then I said, how did it go? She shocked me. Because this is what she did. In my head, the conversation went like this. Hey, man, um, when you did that, it was really offensive. And uh, I just want to let you know because I want to have a reconciled relationship with you. And then pause for the repentance so that they could give forgiveness. Sounds reasonable, but it wasn't. She went to this person and went, hey, would you please forgive me? Uh, Hold on. What do you mean? They did it wrong to you. Yeah, but I, I can't control their heart. What I can do is go to them and ask for forgiveness for my heart. Can you forgive me? Because when that happened, I, I had these feelings towards you. And I'm really sorry. I want to love you at all times. I don't want to judge you. I don't want to draw lines. Will you forgive me? You know that that person repented? Not because they were told what to do, but because of the grace of Jesus was washing over them. And Nasser was able to go, of course I forgive you. Absolutely. May God give us the courage and the faith to walk in a life of forgiveness.